What's your problem? What is your solution? This is an interview series about solutions for people and planet. As a young boy, John Dupuis had a mystical awakening. Mystics and sages have described spiritual awakenings for thousands of years, but their descriptions and experiences rarely involve 12-year-old boys in Texas. Dupuis' experience of enlightenment lasted weeks before it began to fade. Ever since, he has been on a quest for an interconnection with what he calls ultimate truth, ultimate being and ultimate reality. His experience put him on a mission to disseminate a special meditation technology to help solve the problems of the world. Today, his company iAwake offers a special technology that supports deepening meditation. Welcome to Camp Solutions. What was the first time, when was the first time you meditated? I guess my, it starts back with the history of my uh, kind of spiritual uh, journeying. And I was around 12, I think it was 1967. So I must have been about 11, or maybe it was 68. Anyway, it was near there that I had my first big spiritual kaboom. Uh, and it, it happened, I was reading a New Testament in my bedroom and I started reading the Sermon on the Mount and I had this amazing experience that all of a sudden, and I've, I've grown up Catholic and heard about Jesus all my life. And, whatever you know he's the guy that's getting tortured you know up on stage and then has a kind of a weird looking bloody heart and the statues and i was like okay and this is what good people do you know that was about the depth of it but i had this experience when when the words you know blessed are the poor for they there's this kingdom and, and all the stuff just started coming through and it's just like uh it was shocking and i felt god's presence everywhere and god's presence was loving and so there was love everywhere and great love for all things and all beings and all people and i was just high as a kite just on god and his love and that started me on and that that direct power of that experience lasted i don't know maybe a few weeks which is a lot you know for an experience like that and then it began to fade but i began to consciously uh attempt to pray and not, you know, Lord, won't you buy me Mercedes Benz variety, but trying to make conscious contact with God, as it says in step 11 of the 12 steps. And uh, so that kind of started me on this quest for uh, interconnection with uh, God, whatever that mystery is that we want to call it, that all the mystics wrote about and experienced. And of course, it's the connection inside that gives you the connection to the outside. So it's not just connecting to the God within, but God within experience connects you to God without. And maybe a God without experience is also connects with the God within. Um, when I say God, I'm talking about ultimate truth, ultimate being, ultimate reality. And so uh, that led me on a whole decade or, decade or so of experience. And um fell on my face a lot. My friend Roger Walsh said uh, one time that, that spiritual progress has made one body length at a time. So <clears throat> getting up and, and in my case, it's probably two body lengths at a time. But so I, you know, I, I went down some strange things, but I learned a lot and kind of got into kind of a, a fundamentalist Christian culty type of thing. And I had to come out of that and uh, just start all over from square one, you know? Let's find the moment then that it expanded and, and for you, your personal experience into, you know, outside the institution, if you like, and more as, a, as an experience. Would it be fair to, to ask you? Yeah, well, that, that, that was when I was a child. And of course, that, that started the undeniable that something is there, 
And uh, I went through deconstructing all my religious beliefs and structures and dogmas to just being open to the truth. You know, it's like, okay, I don't care. You know, if I come out of this an atheist or an agnostic or a believer, I don't care, but I just don't want any more bullshit. And that's kind of the way it was. And I would like to say that, that uh, the journey deepened. And um, after another few adventures, I was in the military and I went to school, but always just kind of sparked this hunger for spirituality. And in my readings and, and uh, at the university, I became more uh, just kind of kept approaching that. And then I went and worked as a, a guide in the wilderness with disturbed kids for a year and a half in the piney woods of Texas. And I think that the exposure to um, uh, just the woods and living out in nature is another, you know, very direct path to, uh, to the awesomeness of, of existence. And that started me a little more uh, into prayer and a little more into meditation and reading more about it. Then finally, I went to grad school. I moved to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. area. And uh, started, that's when I really started uh, getting into the perennial philosophy, if you will, studying you know Buddhism and, and Christianity and Sufism and Native American uh, mysticism and spirituality and putting it all together. And, and when you started to explore these, you know, other expressions of God, if you like, do you recall that there was something that more particularly spoke to you? It just depends what I was reading at the time. I would go through phases where I would be completely into Sufi teaching and just, you know, absorb all that. And it was like, gosh, I feel so much more Sufi than I do Christian, you know, because I mean, the, the Sufi at the highest expression is, is very... Uh, you know, they said, we're not worshiping the bottle, we're worshiping the wine. In other words, the outward structures don't matter. It is God, his or herself, the mystery itself that matters. And I was mm -hmm. yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, then I was deeply into the study of St. Francis of Assisi, became a big teacher of mine, and uh, then Buddhism and just all these traditions. So whatever I was in at the moment, I would get in and just really absorb it and then kind of take that away. Uh, and add that to my own my own inner structure. And so you have this experience. You're in grad school. You're sort of you know you're young and you're open to to all this you know, new input if you like. And there's a lot to learn and to experience. And but how do you create a career out of that? What is what what do you do with your life when you're so much focused on this journey? Uh, a series of serendipitous. Body links, I guess. <laughs> and uh, well, in, in grad school, I started studying transpersonal psychology, which came out of the humanistic psychology movement. And I think Maslow was he was he actually uh, coined the term transpersonal psychology because at, at the, the, the deepest reaches of humanistic psychology, they were getting to something that was definitely beyond the mere human or the individual ego structure the itself. So transpersonal, the, the, that which trans, uh, transcended the persona. And so I really started getting into there. And of course, at that time, I began to experiment with psychedelics. But I had a taste of that when I was a kid. But this time, really doing it seriously, not hedonistically, but using it as, as a uh, tool for growth and exploration. And of course, that deepened um, my my encounter with the divine and I would uh I'd go out in nature you know I'd go and and you know sit on the banks of a river and, and do you know pretty heroic doses of of mushrooms or, or 
main, yeah, that was one of the big ones, but other substances too. And never had any idea of microdosing at that time. So that uh, really opened up doors and gave me new kind of uh, confirmation that, that this uh, mystical reality was true. And I'd had experience of that. I'm a, I'm a tortured mystic, a God haunted mystic. I would have experiences. And of course, as in state experiences, you get them and then they fade, you know, and you have the memory of them, but the quality of it doesn't abide. And so you can go crazy. And some in the early, in the sixties, we were thinking, well, we take LSD and we experience this and then we come down and we're no longer enlightened. So maybe we should just do LSD all the time. And that was tough and that didn't work very well. So how do you cultivate uh, this, these um, mountaintop experience so, so you can live this stuff in the valley in the everyday life? And that's when meditation and practice started uh, becoming more and more important to me. And uh, later on, after the San Francisco experience, I'd moved uh, out with my now wife, Pam, to Southern Utah to be in the wilderness. And we, we uh, yandered and journeyed through the wilderness for about six months. And I was vision questing. I found a little book called the book of the vision quest. And I went, Oh, that's a dandy idea. I've got to try this. And it never dawned on me that I could actually have people support me. <laughs> and I was like, hello. So I just go out and find a Canyon rim, a place, a good place, a sacred place. And I'd sit there and, and fast and pray for four days. And uh, I had some, some, some powerful experiences, some things that kind of gave me the, uh, the powerful indications and clue that I was on a path. What kind of practice you ultimately discovered that, you know, you've right. mostly adhered to over the years? Yeah. And when I, I first saw, I got in touch with Ken, uh, at that time they had something called integralnaked.org as a website. And of course, Ken at that time, he, he, you know, he worked out and he had the body of a Greek God and he had the spiritual practice that he did and all. And he was talking about uh, integrating all these things. And I went, wow, you know, and kind of Christianity was like, oh, the body's evil. So let's not feed it very well. And let's not exercise and just kind of be wimpy. And I'm talking extreme, you know, asceticism. And I said, no, I can get into this because I've been working out for, you know, I don't know, 25 years at that point. And so I started putting all together and I started to, I started to, to meditate. And of course, I had been an on and off again meditator for decades, but, you know, sometimes life gets so busy. It's just really hard to uh, sustain, sustain it without being in a community, which I was not going to do again. Thank you very much. Uh, after my early kind of cult, not kind of my early cult experience. And um, uh, so I was working on that. And then at some point I heard a talk, Ken Wilbur and Bill Harris about uh, binaural brain entrainment technology. And at that time, I was working in the wilderness, designing and helping lead a program, working with young people who were suffering from um, alcohol and drug uh, abuse and sometimes addiction uh, in the wilderness context. You know, take them away from where you're at and go through this transformative yeah. uh, rite of passage in the wilderness. And I knew that meditation was a very part of a good part of it, but I was like, how can I, how can I uh, help these guys to pick this up? And I can't even be that consistent myself. So I ordered, uh, well, I started looking around. It wasn't just uh, Centerpoint, Bill Harris's thing, but there were several other things at the time. And I started listening to these, uh, these um, audio tracks that uh, the binaural beats, the basic, basic technology is you have one beat in this ear, say 100 hertz and 110 in this ear. The brain doesn't know how to deal with that. You're using kind of stereo headphones or earbuds, whatever. 
And the brain splits a difference at five hertz. And so you're able by, by the, 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 um, the hertz, the different balances that these, between these two different uh, beats uh, to entrain the brain to whatever desired brainwave state. And meantime, back at the ranch, they had been discovering that uh, meditators could actually, very experienced masters could change their brainwave states through their practices. So then they found this technology and say, my God, we can just get the guy off the street listening to the sounds and take their brains, something that otherwise would take many years of dedicated daily practice. We can do it in, in eight or 10 minutes. Yeah. And there they yeah. are. Ding. And I went, wow, maybe this will help my students yes. you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how to meditate. Yeah. So I started using it, experimenting with it, thinking, of course, it was to help my students. I had another bing, you know, big mystical experience, non-duality um, that that John was real, you know, this infinitesimal little bit of consciousness, but also connected to the everything. And um, one of the realizations that came in that kind of the knowingness is that the ego is also real, you know, our individual self, whatever that means. And there's a lot of ways to say that. Uh, is that it just a uh, collection of all your experiences? Is there a soul? Is there something that goes from lifetime to lifetime? There's a lot of different parts of it. Whatever that is, it was real. And that any, um, any path that denied the reality of the ego was going to get its butt kicked by the ego. You know, try to deny it. See how that works. And I went, oh, yeah. So I kind of realized I had to cultivate this, this big mind or this big self uh, reality, but also do my work on my, you know, fragile, beat up, wounded, you know, uh, neurotic, whatever, uh, little self in order that if I ever got to the point where, you know, well, that, that the universe wanted to use me to do good things in the world, my ego structure would be in good enough shape. So I wouldn't, you know, twist it and pervert it and distort it as it came through my kind of shadowy non you know non-process or non non-worked on self so it became uh my practice became doing both of those and i found that the the brain entrainment or the binaural allowed me to have a deep spiritual practice where i could just close my mind down or stop thinking and you know think if i wanted to but i didn't have to and uh, also it helped me to process a lot of the uh, trauma and a lot of the, the issues and the wounds that I was dealing on a deep somatic level also. So it was actually performing a whole bunch of functions. So would you say now with the experience you have uh, that the binaural approach, you know, using, if you like, technology to enhance meditation, um, is that, you know, would you say your experiences were better in meditation experiences because of that? And would you say that probably that applies for most of people, most people? Yeah, it, it's that. And it may not work for everyone. I don't want to just be, you know, absolutistic, but it works for most of us. And it, you still have to do the work. You still have to practice. You still have to shut up and sit down and put your headphones on and, and, and cultivate uh, the discipline. But more people are able to do that because you start feeling the results of a profound meditation practice almost immediately. And some people, it's very dramatic right from the get-go. They go, wow, this is something um, that's really going on. So it's like, is it a shortcut? Yes. Is it cheating? I don't think so. I'm here, I'm speaking from Louisiana right now. And if I wanted to go to Paris, 
I'd probably get on an airplane, you know, at one of the, you know, in, in New Orleans or Baton Rouge, wherever the local airport is around here and, and fly to Paris. And you say, that's cheating. You really should walk and then make a canoe and paddle your way across the Atlantic and then get a donkey from the shore to Paris. I mean, that's quite an adventure and it would get you there. Maybe if you were extremely lucky, but there's a lot better ways to get there more quickly. And why is that desirable? Because if we can wake up more quickly without wasting a lot of unneeded time, then we can become the people that we need to be in the time allotted to us in this individual life to do good in the world and to give our gifts and to find our gifts and to share that with the rest of us. We have an app now, free app. You can download and collect all the tracks. And so you have your temple with you, whether you're on an airplane, in the underground, the bus, in your office, in your meditation spot at home. But it, and that's only a part of a, a bigger picture. And I think the bigger picture is that for human beings to become what we need to be in order to survive as a species, and there's a lot of other life species that are looking at us to get our acts together so they have a chance to live and evolve. Also, we're going to have to focus on inner development. Okay. You know, and that's just not taught. I didn't learn that in school. I didn't learn that in high school. I didn't learn that in, in uh, college. And you don't learn that in religious schools. And this is wake up, grow up, clean up, and show up. Okay. So waking up includes knowing what you are at the ultimate level, which, you know, the Buddha and the mystics, when you get down to the ground of being and you find you are that at your deepest level, what you are was never born, was not created, will never die. It is that thing which changes everything. And it's also waking up who you are as an individual human being and what your path is and what your calling is. Then you have to grow up to the highest level of your moral, spiritual, physical capacities. And that takes work and practice and dedication because it matters. And then the cleaning up is mean you got to deal with your stuff, whether it's your diet or your traumas or your stuff that's inside of you that's getting in the way that if you don't deal with it, you're going to screw up. You're going to hurt people. You're not going to be a good parent. You're not going to be a good partner. You're not going to be a good leader or follower or whatever it is. It could be better if you, and then you have to show up. So you discovered this, this technology, uh, you know, in the late nineties, as you just said, and um, then at some point you decided to turn that into your own business to, to create a company for focusing exactly on that. How did that happen? A friend, connected me with an individual, Eric Thompson, who uh, was living in Colorado at that time. And I uh, said, you got to meet this guy. You talk about this technology in the same way. And he's actually creating this stuff. And so we had a meeting and, you know, we, I'd struggled with depression. And so there was, there was just a lot of uh, connections and our belief in the efficacy and the importance of this technology. So I said, give me, you know, let me have some of your stuff. And at that time I'd been, you know, I don't know, for several years have been using this technology, at least a couple of years, three years, maybe. And so you become kind of a connoisseur. You know, if you listen to classical music every day, you know, you begin to know what's good, what's not, et cetera. And so I listened to it and I said, wow, this is better than anything I've ever used. So we, we I called him back. We had some conversations. And with my wife, we decided to start what turned into Iowa Technologies. And uh, I had no idea, it was just serendipitous events that happened and uh, it started, you know, growing and catching and, and on and helping a lot of people. It's been, it's been tremendous.
Um, so the, the basic concept of the binaural technology, I guess, remains the same. So uh, what have you found uh, over time that, you know, you can add or change or improve? Yeah. I mean, when we talk, you say, well, we have now done this. And you say there is a new kind of approach, a new tape, if you like. Uh, yeah. But then what is different? What, what, how is this technology? Evolved? Well, we, we've re- find, you know, if you listen to the original uh, tapes, when they first started doing this stuff, you'd hear, bada, 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 you know, you'd hear these beats, by, hence binaural beats. Well, now you barely hear that if you hear it at all. And there's other ways of using sound to do the same things. There's other uh, t- types of technology that are laid onto the uh, the binaural beats in addition to uh, subtle energy. Sometimes it doesn't have any binaural stuff at all. It just uses other technology. So we've been pushing the envelope, evolving it, trying to make it more effective, more powerful, but to push you in a way that's not jarring, but that a, a very strong, but gentle at the same time. What would you say to the average uh, person who gets interested into meditation? You know, some people have said, uh, you need to go to a teacher, you need to go to a place where you're being actually being taught how to meditate. And, you know, there is no absolute answer again, I'm sure. But would you argue that it is possible to just start your own practice by buying one of your tracks and, and, and start experimenting for yourself? I think Ken Wilber one time said, we need spiritual teachers with, uh, with uh, a small T. You know, we don't need, I, I think the guru relationship, master disciple relationship really doesn't work very well in modernity, you know, and beyond because you start to see, oh, this guy's really a human like me. And he's got all kinds of issues like me. And he's trying to say that he doesn't. And that whenever I see this stuff, I have to distrust myself and just think it's my ego getting in the way of seeing his perfection. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, and so you have yeah, to yeah. you have to cut off the, the, the voice of your own rational truth, your own gut, your own what you're seeing to get into this kind of relationship. Yeah. So, yes, we I think having people who are more advanced and know uh, some of the pitfalls and know the technology and can be inspiring. Terrific. But when it gets down to it, you know, in, in the West, they say everybody has to break his own Bronco. You know, it's like you got to do your own work and nobody can can do it for you. And there's that old Zen quip. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. You know, Well, obviously, it's not saying kill the Buddha, this awakened self. But if you're looking, ultimately, if you keep looking for that person to turn your switch outside of yourself, you're going to waste a lot of time. And ultimately, the encounter and the work has to be done with you, you know, yeah. in your own in your own body. But you could also use this technology just to get yourself focused. If you're reading or you're on the internet, you know, typing, writing, just have the headphones on. Your brain functions at a much higher level. It's very good for releasing stress, uh, for dealing with trauma that ultimately has to be dealt with somatically. Somehow this, this technology seems to allow that somatic process to happen unlike more than, than, than say, uh, traditional meditation, which sometimes can be dissociative. You know, you kind of, it doesn't grind out the stuff that needs to be released uh, from the body. So it has many applications and people keep finding new ones. So two, two questions. You, you refer to the fact that the, 
the sort of the master-disciple uh, relationship doesn't really work with, as you said, modernity in, in this world where, you know, you can go to the supermarket and choose about 100 types of toothpaste. You know, in that kind of a world, it's never that relationship with one with one person, if you like. You, you want to be able to choose your own re- reality uh, in the supermarket, but also in different ways. And, and that is maybe why this whole thing that ultimately came out of Asia, I suppose, over time uh, is is being changed in the Western experience where it's far more individual. And would you say that, you know, your technology, the iAwake contribution is to make that more available on exactly that level, the individual level? Absolutely. Yeah. It democratizes, you know, instead of the, the, the kingdom of heaven, I'm looking forward to the Republic of heaven, you know, where we're all citizens and we're not waiting on the one or two people that wake up every generation that we can all follow them around and get a buzz off of their attainments. But it's it's really coming home to roost now, and we need to do do our own work. And you know, and there are people, and I'm pretty against the whole guru thing, but there are people like uh, Ram Das and everything who really benefited a lot from um, you know from his relationship with his guru. And uh, there's a, a couple other individuals that that I come to mind, uh, but probably more uh, negative. Uh, than positive at this point. I just don't think the the uh, guru disciple thing is really appropriate for a modern and postmodern um, uh, civilization, and which is where we're going. So we have to adapt and and evolve according to where we're at currently in our consciousness levels. There's of course a lot of research around meditation. Did you ever do any of that with I awake? Uh, like you know, yeah. We certainly have, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the often in, in, in kind of how the trajectory of, of new technologies goes for when we started, started doing therapeutic wilderness programs, we knew that it was a great idea. And we knew if we got basically, uh, you know, we started with men, but young men who were hurting out in the wilderness with a uh, good older men, that good things would happen. And that was our formula and it worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. then, you know, we started, then women came right in there, right at the very beginning. And uh, uh, we knew the power of the wilderness, you know, I'd go out there in a group for six to eight weeks, you know, uh, in the wilderness without coming back. And I'm like, man, I would be transformed. And at a certain point I would start, you know, I'm home here. I'm sitting on a rocket. I am home. I am not visiting the wilderness. I am the wilderness. And I'm connected to all of this and just a, a deep connecting with uh, ancestors and the presence. And as you know, the, the, the old saying, there's no, uh, no atheists in foxholes. Well, I don't think there's any atheists after eight weeks in the wilderness and at least in the uh, Southern Utah wilderness, it's divine. I mean, it's awe striking. <laughs> and <clears throat> so anyway, later on, we started pulling our resources and doing research. You know, we hired psychologists and, and, and who was, researchers and they started taking all the data and they said lo and behold just what we knew anecdotally and intuitively was true okay so so basically i first led the 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 research on standard meditation and there's you know it's all over time magazine life it's it's pretty much in, in the popular press now meditation is effective and really a good thing well there's also since the 70s i've been doing research on the basic technology and uh, yeah we have hooked uh uh our folks up to um 
these devices while they're meditating and used, uh, you know, just sounds without the entrainment and different ways of, of testing it. And uh, yeah, we've had very positive results. I mean, sometimes what, what dramatic. What, 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 what has come out of that research? Well, that uh, generally when you're entraining the brain to say Delta, the brain goes to Delta. You know, an alpha, it, it actually works. The entrainment process actually does take it there. Some, a lot of the research that was, that didn't show any results is the, the main problem is they didn't do it long enough. They do it like for a couple of minutes or three minutes. And uh, the, the research has showed it takes, I traditionally takes about eight minutes to really get into that zone. I think, I think uh, our technology is more effective. I don't think it takes that long anymore. We can consciously, I mean, the, the basic Uber meta messages that we can consciously uh, control our brainwave states. And Western science just thought that it was just random. The brain does what it does according to whatever stimuli, you know, where you're at. And then they started finding meditators that were very advanced and they could control that. And then, of course, you not, not only do you need to see, well, the brain is wiggling at Delta, you need the, the, the experience of what's happening at those brainwave states. So it's like if, if, if I wouldn't do research on somebody who's, or people falling in love, you know, we could, that are in love, experiencing that in love, we could look at their brains and say, wow, there's commonalities. This thing's going on. This brain may say this part of the brain's firing, this part of the brain's closing down, blah, blah, blah. There's a commonality of what we can see about the brain. These, these neurochemicals are happening. And then, but that, what does that tell you about falling in love? Well, what your brain does, it tell you about the experience? Absolutely not. For that, you have to talk to people who've been in love, listen to Beatles songs, you know, Shakespeare's sonnet, you know, blah, blah. Uh, that'll, you know, that'll give you that part of it. So it, it takes really both kind of the raw exterior science, but that can only take you so far. And the experiential anecdotal stuff is just as valid, but they're both incomplete. You need to kind of put, put both of those together. And uh, then you, then you have more information, which is what we continue to try to do at iAwake. What do you recommend from your eye awake uh, uh, perspective for people to do? Like, is that a 20 minute a day experience or more or less? What, what, what is that? Yeah. Um, I think go to our website and there's like things you can just demos you can use for free to just try it. And um, you know, it depends where you're at. If you are an experienced meditator and, and if you are experienced meditators, they can uh, experienced meditators can often feel the power of this technology more quickly than just the novice who's never done anything because they, they just, you know, they're used to it. They're getting meditative states. They go, oh, wow. Yeah. This takes me right there. Uh, I would say, you know, work out a practice uh, as long as you can stand it, you know, and the, the more you practice, the easier it becomes to practice. So start off slow if you're a beginner and uh, work your way up. And if you, you know, if you get to an hour a day and generally I say the morning is the best time and here's a real discipline, do not check your damn phone, you know, before you meditate, you know, grab your coffee, you know, do your ablutions, whatever you got to do and get to your meditation place. And then once you've done your meditation, then you're ready to, and your mind won't be clotted, you know, uh, with, with all the, the stuff that's unfolding and then get into your work of connecting with the world. That's a really, a really big tip. And uh, it really works. Uh, John, finally, let me ask you, is meditation the shortest way to a better world? Without it, I don't think we will survive because it is the surest way 
to wake human beings up to their best and deepest nature, which is the part of us that's going to have to show up in order to get through these times where we have the technology of gods and the, the consciousness of, I don't know, of, I don't want to put down cavemen, but of, you know, just kind of bloody warriors or something like that, you know. So we have got to quickly get to uh, a level of consciousness that can deal with the numbers of us on the planet and the technology and our interconnectedness and all these things, because we can see the disasters just in the last year of the internet, you know, all this connectedness without change consciousness turns into madness, you know, and has the potential of destroying our country, you know, the speaking of the United States and civil war and, and all this stuff. So it has to be there and there's no way you can get around it at a certain level you're going to have to start meditating. You're going to have to start doing interior practice in heroic, sustained effort in order to become the people that we need to be to do what we have to do. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them, said Albert Einstein. Humanity needs to rise to more awareness to overcome the challenges posed by injustice and pollution. Technology-enhanced meditation may be the shortest way to a better world. As John Dupuy says, without a changed consciousness, we are bound to descend into madness. We have to start meditating to become the people we need to be to do what we have to do. This was Camp Solutions. See you again soon.